Part three of the Biography of a Grizzly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Biography of a Grizzly by Ernest Thompson Seton. Part three The Waning. Years went by. Wahab grew no bigger. There was no need for that, but he got whiter, crosser, and more dangerous. He really had an enormous range now. Each spring, after the winter storms had removed his notice boards, he went around and renewed them. It was natural to do so, for, first of all, the scarcity of food compelled him to travel all over the range. There were lots of clay wallows at that season, and the itching of his skin as the winter coat began to shed made the dressing of cool wet clay very pleasant and the exquisite pain of a good scratching was one of the finest pleasures he knew so whatever his motive the result was the same the signs were renewed each spring at length the pallet ranch outfit appeared on the lower piney and the men got acquainted with the ugly old fellow the cowpunchers when they saw him decided they hadn't lost any bears, and they had better keep out of his way, and let him mind his business. They did not often see him, although his tracks and signboards were everywhere. But the owner of this outfit, a born hunter, took a keen interest in Wahab. He learned something of the old bear's history from Colonel Pickett, and found out for himself more than the colonel ever knew. He learned that Wahab ranged as far south as the upper Wiggins Fork, and north to the stinking water, from the Matitsi to the Shoshones. He found that Wahab knew more about bear traps than most trappers do, that he either passed them by or tore open the other end of the bit and dragged out the bait without getting near the trap, and, by accident or design, Wahab sometimes sprang the trap with one of the logs that formed the pen. The ranch owner found also that Wahab disappeared from his range each year during the heat of the summer, as completely as he did each winter during his sleep. Many years ago a wise government set aside the headwaters of the Yellowstone to be a sanctuary of wild life forever. In the limits of this great wonderland, the ideal of the royal singer was to be realized, and none were to harm or make afraid. No violence was to be offered to any bird or beast. No axe was to be carried into its primitive forests, and the streams were to flow on forever, unpolluted by mill or mine. All things were to bear witness that such as this was the West before the white man came. The wild animals quickly found out all this. They soon learned the boundaries of this unfenced park, and, as everyone knows, they show a different nature within its sacred limits. They no longer shun the face of man. They neither fear nor attack him. And they are even more tolerant of one another in this land of refuge. Peace and plenty are the sum of earthly good. So, finding them here, the wild creatures crowd into the park from the surrounding country in numbers not elsewhere to be seen. The bears are especially numerous about the Fountain Hotel, in the woods a quarter of a mile away is a smooth open place where the steward of the hotel has all the broken and waste food but not daily for the bears and the man whose work it has become the steward of the bears banquet 
Each day it is spread, and each year there are more bears to partake of it. It is a common thing now to see a dozen bears feasting there at one time. They are of all kinds, black, brown, cinnamon, grizzly, silvertip, roachbacks, big and small, families and rangers, from all parts of the vast surrounding country, all seem to realize that in the park no violence is allowed, and the most ferocious of them have here put on a new behavior. Although scores of bears roam about this choice resort, and sometimes quarrel among themselves, not one of them has ever yet harmed a man. Year after year they have come and gone. The passing travelers see them. The men of the hotel know many of them well. They know that they show up each summer during the short season when the hotel is in use, and that they disappear again, no man knowing whence they came or whither they go. One day the owner of the Pallet Ranch came through the park. During his stay at the Fountain Hotel he went to the Bear Banquet Hall at high meal-tide. There were several black bears feasting, but they made way for a huge silver-tip grizzly that came about sundown. That said the man who was acting as guide, is the biggest grizzly in the park, but he is a peaceable sort, or Lord knows what would happen. That, said the ranchman, in astonishment as the grizzly came hulking nearer, and loomed up like a load of hay among the piney pillars of the banquet hall, that, if that is not Matisse Wahab, I never saw a bear in my life. Why, that is the worst grizzly that ever rolled a log in the big horn basin. It ain't possible, said the other. Ray's here every summer, July and August, and I reckon he don't live so far away. Well, that settles it, said the ranchman. July and August is just the time we miss him on the range. And you can see for yourself that he is a little lame behind and has lost a claw of his left front foot. Now I know where he puts in his summers, but I did not suppose that the old reprobate would know enough to behave himself away from home. The big grizzly became very well known during the successive hotel seasons. Once only did he really behave ill, and that was the first season he appeared, before he fully knew the ways of the park. He wandered over to the hotel one day, and in at the front door, in the hall he reared up his eight feet of stature as the guest fled in terror. Then he went into the clerk's office. The man said, All right, if you need this office more than I do, you can have it, and, leaping over the counter, locked himself in the telegraph office to wire the superintendent of the park. Old Grizzly in the office now. Seems to want to run hotel. Maybe shoot. The reply came. No shooting allowed in park. Use the hose which they did, and, wholly taken by surprise, the bear leapt over the counter, too, and ambled out the back way with a heavy thud thudding of his feet and a rattling of his claws on the floor. He passed through the kitchen as he went, and, picking up a quarter of beef, took it along. This was the only time he was known to do ill, though on one occasion he was led into breach of the peace by another bear. This was a large she-black bear, and a noted mischief-maker. She had a wretched, sickly club that she was very proud of, so proud that she went out of her way to seek trouble on his behalf. And he, like all spoiled children, was the cause of much bad feeling. She was so big and fierce that she could bully all the other black bears. But when she tried to drive off old Wob, she received a pat from his paw that sent her tumbling like a football. He followed her up, 
and would have killed her, for she had broken the peace of the park, but she escaped by climbing a tree, from the top of which her miserable little cub was apprehensively squealing at the pitch of his voice. So the affair was ended. In future the black bear kept out of Wahb's way, and he won the reputation of being a peaceable, well-behaved bear. Most persons believed that he came from some remote mountains where were neither guns nor traps to make him sullen and revengeful. 3. Everyone knows that a bitterroot grizzly is a bad bear. The bitterroot range is the roughest part of the mountains. The ground is everywhere cut up with deep ravines and overgrown with dense and tangled underbrush. It is an impossible country for horses and difficult for gunners and there is any amount of good bear pasture. So there are plenty of bears and plenty of trappers. The roachbacks, as the bitterroot grizzlies are called, are a cunning and desperate race. An old roachback knows more about traps than half a dozen ordinary trappers. He knows more about plants and roots than a whole college of botanists. He can tell to a certainty just when and where to find each kind of grub and worm and he knows by a whiff whether the hunter on his trail a mile away is working with guns, poison, dogs, traps, or all of them, together. And he has one general rule, which is an endless puzzle to the hunter. Whatever you decide to do, do it quickly, and follow it right up. So when a trapper and a roachback meet, the bear at once makes up his mind to run away as hard as he can, or to rush at the man and fight to a finish. The grizzlies of the Badlands did not do this. They used to stand on their dignity and growl like a thunderstorm, and so gave the hunters a chance to play their deadly lightning, and lightning is worse than thunder any day. Man can get used to growls that rumble along the ground and up one's legs to the little house where one's courage lives, but bears cannot get used to forty-five ninety soft-nosed bullets, and that is why the grizzlies of the Badlands were all killed off. So the hunters have learned that they never know what a roachback will do, but they do know that he is going to be quick about it. Altogether these bitterroot grizzlies have solved very well the problem of life, in spite of white men, and are therefore increasing in their own wild mountains. Of course a range will hold only so many bears, and the increase is crowded out, so that when the slim, young, bald-faced roachback found he could not hold the range he wanted, he went out perforce to seek his fortune in the world. He was not a big bear, or he would not have been crowded out, but he had been trained in a good school, so that he was cunning enough to get on very well elsewhere. How he wandered down to the Salmon River Mountains, and did not like them. How he traveled till he got among the barbed wire fences of the Snake Plains, and of course could not stay there how a mere chance turned him from going eastward to the park where he might have rested, how he made for Snake River Mountains and found more hunters than berries, how he crossed into the Tetons and looked down with disgust on the teeming man-colony of Jackson's Hole, does not belong to this history of Wahab. But when Baldy Roachback crossed the Gross Ventry Range and over the Wind River Divide to the head of the Graybull, he does come into the story, just as he did into the country and the life of the Matatisi Grizzly. The Roachback had not found a man-sign since he left Jackson's Hole, and here he was in a land of plenty of food. He feasted on all the delicacies of the season, and enjoyed the easy, brushless country, till he came on one of Wahom's signposts. 
Trespassers beware. It said in the plainest manner. The roachback reared up against it. Thunder, what a bear! The nose mark was a head and neck above Baldy's highest reach. Now a simple bear would have gone quietly away after the discovery. But Baldy felt that the mountains owed him a living. And here was a good one, if he could keep out of the way of the big fellow. He nosed about the place, kept a sharp lookout for the present owner, and went on feeding wherever he ran across a good thing. A step or two from this ominous tree was an old pine stump. In the bitter roots there are often mice nests under such stumps, and Baldy jerked it over to see. There was nothing. Stump rolled over against the signpost. Baldy had not yet made up his mind about it, but a new notion came into his cunning brain. He turned his head on this side and on that. He looked at the stump, then at the sign, with his little pig-like eyes. Then he deliberately stood up on the pine root, with his back to the tree, and put his mark way up, a head at least above that of Wahab. He rubbed his back long and hard, and he sought some mud to smear his head and shoulders, and then came back and made the mark so big, so strong, and so high, and emphasized it with such claw gnashes in the bark, that it could be read only in one way, a challenge to the present claimant from some monstrous invader who was already, nay, anxious to fight to a finish for this desirable range. Maybe it was accident and maybe design, but when the roachback jumped from the root, it rolled to one side. Baldy went on down the canyon, keeping the keenest lookout for his enemy. It was not long before Wahb found the trail of the interloper, and all the ferocity of his outside-the-park nature was aroused. He followed the trail for miles on more than one occasion, but the small bear was quick-footed as well as quick-witted, and never showed himself. He made a point, however, of calling at each signpost, and if there was any means of cheating so that his mark might be put higher, he did it with a vim, and left a big, showy record. But if there was no chance for anything but a fair register, he would not go near the tree, but looked for a fresh tree nearby, with some log or side ledge to reach from. The Swahab soon found the interloper's marks towering far above his own, a monstrous bear, evidently, that even he could not be sure of mastering. But Wahb was no coward. He was ready to fight to a finish any one that might come, and he hunted the range for that invader. Day after day Wahb sought for him and held himself ready to fight. He found his trail daily, and more and more often he found that towering record far above his own. He often smelled him on the wind, but he never saw him for the old grizzly's eyes had grown very dim of late years. Things but a little way off were mere blurs to him. The continual menace could not but fill Wahab with uneasiness, for he was not young now, and his teeth and claws were worn and blunted. He was more than ever troubled with pains in his old wounds, and though he could have risen on the spur of the moment to fight any number of grizzlies of any size, still the continual apprehension— the knowledge that he must hold himself ready at any moment to fight this young monster weighed on his spirits and began to tell on his general health. 4. The Roachback's life was one of continual vigilance, always ready to run, doubling and shifting to avoid the encounter that must mean instant death to him. Many a time, 
From some hiding place he watched the great bear, and trembled lest the wind should betray him. Several times his very impudence saved him, and more than once he was nearly cornered in a box canyon. Once he escaped only by climbing up a long crack in a cliff, which Wahab's huge frame could not have entered, but still, in a mad persistence, he kept on marking the trees further into the range. At last he scented and followed up the sulphur bath, and did not understand it at all. It had no appeal to him, but hereabouts were the tracks of the owner. In a spirit of mischief the roachback scratched dirt into the spring, and then seeing the rubbing-tree he stood sidewise on the rocky ledge, and was thus able to put his mark fully five feet above that of Wahab. Then he nervously jumped down and was running about, defiling the bath and keeping a sharp lookout when he heard a noise in the woods below. Instantly he was all alert. The sound drew near, then the wind brought the sure proof, and the roachback in terror turned and fled into the woods. It was Wahab. He had been failing in health as of late. His old pains were on him again, and, as well as his hind leg, had seized his right shoulder, where were still lodged two rifle balls. He was feeling very ill and crippled with pain. He came up the familiar bank at a jerky limp, and there caught the odor of the foe. Then he saw the track in the mud. His eyes said the track of a small bear. But his eyes were dim now, and his nose, his unerring nose, said, This is the track of the huge invader. Then he noticed the tree with his sign on it, and there, beyond doubt, was the stranger's mark, far above his own. His eyes and nose were agreed on this, and more, they told him that the foe was close at hand, might at any moment come. Wahab was feeling ill and weak with pain. He was in no mood for a desperate fight. A battle against such odds would be madness now. So, without taking the treatment, he turned and swung along the bench, away from the direction taken by the stranger, the first time since his cubhood, that he did decline to fight. That was a turning point in Wahab's life. If he had followed up the stranger, he would have found the miserable little craven trembling, cowering, in an agony of terror behind a log in a natural trap, a walled-in glade only fifty yards away, and would surely have crushed him. Had he even taken the bath, his strength and courage would have been renewed, and if not, then at least in time he would have met his foe, and his afterlife would have been different. But he had turned. This was the fork in the trail. But he had no means of knowing it. He limped along, skirting the lower spurs of the Shoshones, and soon came to the horrid smell that he had known for years, but never followed up or understood. It was right in his road, and he traced it to a small, barren ravine that was strewn over with skeletons and dark objects, and Wahab, as he passed, smelled a smell of many different animals, and knew by its quality that they were lying dead in this treeless, grassless hollow, for there was a cleft in the rocks at the upper end, whence poured a deadly gas, invisible but heavy. It filled the little gulch like a brimming poison bowl, and at the lower end there was a steady overflow, but Wahab knew only that the air that poured from it as he passed made him dizzy and sleepy, and repelled him, so that he got quickly away from it, 
and was glad once more to breathe the piney wind. Once Wahb decided to retreat, it was all too easy to do so the next time, and the result worked double disaster, for since the big stranger was allowed possession of the sulphur spring, Wahb felt that he would rather not go there. Sometimes when he came across the traces of his foe, a spurt of his old courage would come back. He would rumble that thunder growl as of old, and go painfully lumbering along the trail to settle the thing right then and there. But he never overtook the mysterious giant, and his rheumatism, growing worse now that he was barred from the cure, soon made him daily less capable of either running or fighting. Sometimes Wahab would sense his foe's approach when he was in a bad place for fighting, and without really running he would yield to a wish to be on a better footing, where he would have a fair chance. This better footing never led him nearer the enemy, for it is well known that the one awaiting has the advantage. Some days Wahab felt so ill that it would have been madness to have staked everything on the fight, and when he felt well or a little better the stranger seemed to keep away. Wahab soon found that the stranger's track was most often on the war-horse, and the west slope of the piney, the very best feeding grounds. To avoid these when he did not feel equal to fighting was only natural, and as he was always in more or less pain now, it amounted to abandoning to the stranger the best part of the range. Weeks went by. Wahab had meant to go back to his bath, but never did. His pains grew worse. He was now crippled in his right shoulder as well as his hind leg. The long strain of waiting for the fight begot anxiety that grew to be apprehension, which, with the sapping of his strength, was breaking down his courage, as it always must when courage is found on muscular force. His daily care now was not to meet and fight the invader, but to avoid him till he felt better. Thus that first little retreat grew into one long retreat. Wahab had to go further and further down the piney to avoid an encounter. He was daily worse fed, and as the weeks went by was daily less able to crush a foe. He was living and hiding at last on the lower piney, the very place where once his mother had brought him with his little brothers. The life he led now was much like the one he had led after that dark day, perhaps for the same reason. If he had a family of his own, all might have been different. As he limped along one morning, seeking among the barren aspen groves for a few roots, or the wormy partridge berries that were too poor to interest the squirrel and the grouse, he heard a stone rattle down the western slope into the woods, and a little later, on the wind, was born the dreaded taint. He waded through the ice-cold piney. Once he would have leapt it, and the chill water sent through and up each great hairy limb keen pains that seemed to reach his very life. He was retreating again. Which way? There seemed but one way now, towards the new ranch house. But there were signs of stir about it. Long before he was near enough to be seen, his nose, his truest friend, said, Turn, turn, and seek the hills. And turn he did, even at the risk of meeting there the dreadful foe. He limped painfully along the north bank of the piney, keeping in the hollows and among the trees. He tried to climb a cliff that of old he had often bounded up at full speed. When halfway up his footing gave way and down he rolled to the bottom. A long way round was now the only road, for onward he must go, on, 
on, but where? There seemed no choice now but to abandon the whole range to the terrible stranger. And feeling as far as a bear can feel that he has fallen, defeated, dethroned at last, that he is driven from his ancient range by a bear too strong for him to face, he turned up the west fork, and the lot was drawn. The strength and speed were gone from his once mighty limbs. He took three times as long as he had once would to mount each well-known ridge, and as he went he glanced backward from time to time to know if he were pursued. Away up the head of the little branch were the Shoshones, bleak, forbidding, no enemies were there, and the park was beyond it all. On, on he must go. But as he climbed with shaky limbs and short uncertain steps, the west wind brought the odor of Death Gulch, that fearful little valley where everything was dead, where the very air was deadly. It used to disgust him and drive him away. But now Wahab felt that it had a message for him. He was drawn by it. It was in his line of flight, and he hobbled slowly towards the place. He went nearer, nearer, until he stood upon the entering ledge. A vulture that had descended to feed on one of the victims was slowly going to sleep on the untouched carcasses. Wahab swung his great grizzled muzzle and his long white beard in the wind. The odor that he once had hated was attractive now. There was a strange biting quality in the air. His body craved it, for it seemed to numb his pain and it promised sleep, as it did that day when first he saw the place. Far below him, to the right and to the left, and on and on as far as the eye could reach, was the great kingdom that once had been his, where he had lived for years in the glory of his strength, where none had dared to meet him face to face. The whole earth could show no view more beautiful. But Wahab had no thought of its beauty. He only knew that it was a good land to live in, that it had been his, but that now it was gone, for his strength was gone, and he was flying to seek a place where he could rest and be at peace. Away over the Shoneys, indeed, was the road to the park. But it was far, far away, with a doubtful end to the long, doubtful journey. But why so far? Here in this little gulch was all he sought. Here were peace and painless sleep. He knew it, for his nose, his never-erring nose, said, Here, here, now. He paused a moment at the gate and as he stood the wind-borne fumes began their subtle work. Five were the faithful wardens of his life, and the best and truest of them all flung wide open the door he long had kept. A moment still Wahab stood in doubt. His lifelong guide was silent now, had given up his post, but another sense he felt within. The angel of the wild things was standing there, beckoning. In the little veil, Wahab did not understand. He had no eyes to see the tear in the angel's eyes, nor the pitying smile that was surely on his lips. He could not even see the angel, but he felt him, beckoning, beckoning. A rush of his ancient courage surged in the grizzly's rugged breast. He turned aside into the little gulch, 
the deadly vapors entered in filled his huge chest and tingled in his vast heroic limbs as he calmly lay down on the rocky herbless floor and as gently went to sleep as he did that day in his mother's arms by the grable long ago end of section three recording by mike vendetti mikevendetti.com end of the biography of a grizzly by ernest thompson seaton